That's a blessing. There's a lot of theology right there, too. <laughs> the Bible says God holds the world in the span of his hands. And thank you, girls. That was a blessing. And we're going to be praying for you and your family as you uh, move on up to Jacksonville that God would bless and use. And uh, what sweet girls. I just I have a special place in my heart for any family that has all girls. I just, I don't know why, but uh, I just think about Brother Ernie and what all he's got to look forward to. <laughs> all right, well, take your Bibles tonight, and uh, we got a great crowd tonight, our meeting to follow, but we're in the book of Nehemiah, and hopefully you grabbed a copy of the notes out there. Anybody made it in, didn't get a copy of the notes? Raise your hand. Anybody at all? Anybody didn't get a copy of the notes? Man, it looks like everybody did a great job, and uh, so we are going to cover... A lot of information, and uh, as you look here, maybe some of you visiting with us tonight, we are in this series called Route 66, and we call it that because of the 66 books of the Bible. We're in the Old Testament books. Last year, we did the New Testament, and so if you notice there on the shelves that we are in that section that is light blue, and we are on the second to last book, only one book left of the historical section and, uh, and you're going to see some, some interesting things, because I've said this many times, but I want to keep it before you, is that when we look at the Bible, of course, God's Word is a supernatural book, and w there are many things about it, but one thing to keep in mind is just because it goes from cover to cover does not mean everything in it is in chronological order. And so we always need to keep that in mind, and if we're studying history especially the history of the, the Hebrew people, then understand that if we're in the second to last book of the historical books, even though there are many other Old Testament books to follow, those books are going to fit within the confines of much of what we've already covered. So keep that in mind as we go through it. I give a title to every book, of course, the book of Nehemiah. We're going to call it the book of, just like the book of Ezra, the book of the returning remnant. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. Now, I have a couple charts here. One of them, I, I really wanted to give it to you, and we'll, we'll test Brother Tyler tonight to see if he's able to do some of this. But if you look on this chart, hopefully you can see it, you have at the top the kings, you have the Babylonian kings, and then, of course, you have the Medo-Persian uh, Medo kings, or the, the Medes and the Persians. And so you see here that as you see the kings there, Nebuchadnezzar, the Neo-Babylonian Empire, and then if you look on over to the right, notice you see right below this, stop right there, the fall of Babylon, 539, and then we see that the first return there, the temple work is started, and we see Zerubbabel, we talked about that last week in the book of Ezra, the work then is stopped, and you can see the timeline there, and then the work the temple work itself was resumed, the temple was finished, and then notice that before we get to, uh, notice all the way over here where our Artaxerxes the first is, that you see right below that five, uh, uh, 458 is when Ezra returns, that's the second return of the exiles from captivity. Remember there was a space of years in between there, but notice that before that happens, the book of Esther fits right in there under uh, Ahasuerus there. You see the feast of Xerxes, Queen Vashti there is uh, disposed of. And then, of course, Esther is crowned queen. 
Now, a lot of times we don't think about that, and we're, we studied last week the book of Ezra, tonight the book of Nehemiah, and of course the book of Esther fits right in between those books, but we're going to cover them in the order that they're given in our Bible. Now, one of the suggestions I made last week was that as you read the book of Ezra, that you would read from chapters 1 to 6, and then you would read the book of Esther, and then go back to Ezra and read the remainder of the book of Ezra, because that's really historically where the book of Esther fits in. Now, beyond the book of Ezra is what we're going to cover tonight, where that number three is, and that's where Nehemiah 445 returns to Jerusalem, and he goes back not to build a temple, that's already been done under Zerubbabel and Ezra, he goes back to rebuild the walls, and go to the bottom, Brother Tyler, if you can, there for us, and you can see right there, again, the books and how they fit in, and we won't take time, but go back over to, to this side here, there you go, notice the prophets, and remember, we're going to we're going to get to this section in the Bible, in these books of the Bible, but I want you to see where the prophet Daniel and the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Ezekiel fit in right there during the years of captivity, all right? And that's very, very important, especially Daniel's prophecy, and we'll talk a little bit about that tonight, and Ezekiel, all right? Now go over to Brother Tyler this way, and then notice a couple of the other prophets there, Zechariah and Haggai, and so these prophets fit within the confines of the history. We have to keep that in mind, and so that was a little exercise there. Hopefully that made sense to you and maybe get you to think a little bit tonight where we are. Now go to this other uh, next slide, if you would. I believe I gave it you. There you go. Uh, this is a chronological relationship of the books, notice here, of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Now, this was on the other one, but this is a simplified form of it. This is just talking about the returns from captivity. So we see here the first return from uh, the Jews from Babylonian captivity, Ezra chapters 1 to 6. Then we see that 58-year gap, and that's where the book of Esther fits in. Then the second return of the Jews under Ezra, Ezra chapter 7 through 10, then there's another small gap, 13 years, and then we see what we're going to study tonight, the book of Nehemiah. Now, let me just say this before I move on. It, it, when you think about, and, and there's some discrepancy on the year that Christ was born, that he came into this world, and a lot of that has to do with the Jewish calendar and our calendar and trying to reconcile those dates. Now, I'm not going to argue with people over it. Uh, many believe it was 4 B.C. There is some discrepancy on exactly when it is. But let's just say, for argument's sake tonight, that it was 4 B.C. Everybody with me? The period in our Bible that goes from the last book of the Old Testament, which is the book of Malachi, till the first book in the New Testament, the book of Matthew. How many years was there between those two? 400. So let's say that Christ was born in 4 B.C. Notice the book of Nehemiah goes to 425 B.C. Take off 400 years, and you see here how close this is to beginning that 400 years of silence. Hopefully you get what I just said, because again, notice the position of the book of Nehemiah in the Bible, in our Bible, but understand that it is really farther along chronologically 
but we're going to cover other books that will fit back into this time frame, all right? Hopefully you got that, but I wanted you to see that because, again, this is not too far from when God went silent because his people were not listening to him and obeying him, all right? We'll move on from there. Hopefully you'll get some of this as time goes on. We'll bring some of that back into light when we get into the, the books of the prophets. Now, notice in your notes there under name, of course, Nehemiah means comforted of God. Nehemiah, and I love this. Look, this is a term that we may not always use. How many of you have ever heard the term layman? Okay, most of us probably have. Really what you're talking about is somebody that is not full-time in the ministry, not called of God to be a pastor or something in a full-time capacity. In other words, just a Christian that is serving in a local church. Oftentimes we use that term layman. Nehemiah was a layman. He was a businessman. Uh, some of you guys, uh, same thing here, uh, and understand that God used a man here that was not called to preach. He was a layman, a businessman, and he was called, and notice here, while Ezra was a priest and a scribe. So much different for Nehemiah than for Ezra. Ezra was a priest, he was a scribe, Nehemiah was not. Now, though Nehemiah had an important office in the king's court, notice Nehemiah's heart was with God, and Nehemiah's heart was with his people in Jerusalem. You see that in immediately in the first chapter as he begins to share the burden of his heart, just like Paul. Paul said his desire is that all Israel would be saved. Well, Nehemiah had a heavy heart for his people. Notice chapter 1, verse 11. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper I pray thee, thy servant, this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Now, you hear that statement there, he was the king's cupbearer. You think, wow, what a job. No, his job literally was to taste everything before the king tasted it. And oftentimes, kings died because people poisoned them. And so, I don't know about you, but I probably wouldn't have wanted that job personally. But it was an important job, and notice he pours, pours his heart out to God that God would give him mercy in the sight of his master. Notice Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 5. He, he says here, I said unto the king, now he's talking to the king, if it please the king, and if thy servant had found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchers, that I may build it. Now you do know the king does not have to honor that request. The king does not have to acquiesce to what he wants, but nonetheless, you have not. Why? Because you ask not. And so he goes to God first, and he, he pleads to God, and then he goes to the king, and guess what? The king granted it. The king gave him the opportunity. Now, I want you to see this map because, again, I like to put things into perspective. I want you to see, if you can, maybe zoom to just to the middle a little bit more, Tyler, if you can, blow it up. Notice he was in the palace over this way just a little bit, the palace of Shushan, and notice his travel through Babylon around back over to the other side there. There you go, doing a great job. And down, notice, down to Jerusalem. So this was no small journey but nonetheless, this was his request. 
he was, he was granted the request to go to the city of his fathers that he may build it, and God, of course, was behind all of that as we saw in the book of Ezra. Now, this book connects to the previous book, the book of Ezra, because Ezra dealt with repairing God's house, the temple. In the book of Nehemiah, the walls of the city are rebuilt. Now, I'll show you some, some things about the walls here a little bit later, but notice the contents of the book. The book shows the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah and especially Daniel concerning the building of the wall of Jerusalem in troublesome times. And the Bible says there in Daniel, the book of Daniel chapter 9 verse 25 in your notes, know therefore and understand that from the going forth to the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince shall be seven years and three score and two, the street shall be built again. Notice the statement, and the wall, even in troublous times. So this was part of Daniel, part of Ezekiel's prophecy that God would allow this to take place, the walls to be rebuilt. Now in Ezra, we note the religious aspect of the return. We talked about that last time. They set up the the altar, they, they rebuilt the temple. What were they doing? They were reestablishing the worship of God. And I love, I love the emphasis there in the book of Ezra, the religious aspect of the return. In the book of Nehemiah, there's a political aspect to the return. The book shows what enemies Israel had. And by the way, that's nothing new. And it's still nothing new today. Uh, we all know what's going on over in Israel right now. But notice the book shows the, the enemies they had and what opposition they met and how this is really a classic example of what must be expected when any work of God is started. Now listen, the devil doesn't fight if we're doing nothing for the Lord. But when we start to do a work for God, the devil is going to rear his ugly head and he's going to try to halt the work of God. And we see this in the book of Ezra. Notice this uh, chart here, and I was trying to remember some of this uh, as I was going through this. I think you have it on the back page of your notes if you cannot see it. But we find here uh, 13 chapters, and notice the first section of it basically deals with the physical security, the work, the builders, uh, the wall, the leadership by a man, how God was using him. And then you see the book really divided after the resettlement. Notice across the top, they made the plans, the reconstruction takes place, they resettle. And then look at the second part of this book is after they resettle, after the, the project is done, notice the revival. And then, of course, there's some other things take place, some reform at the end because it all gets back into this matter of worship. Go down to the bottom of right where you're at. There you go. So notice here that we see the law coming back into view, the will is dealt with there, the spiritual security, whereas on the other six chapters it was dealing with the physical, and this deals with worship and, of course, the revival of a nation. And really, just like the book of Ezra, this book can kind of be divided into two massive sections, and the first one always gives way to the second one. And you can study that chart out a little bit more, but it's a great tool to use as you're reading and studying the book of Nehemiah. Now, just like the book of, of Nehemiah, this is a, uh, excuse me, the book of Ezra, this book is historical, but it is also autobiographical. So this is something that we see that deals with 
uh, the man Nehemiah in, in much of a personal way. Uh, the subject of the book is, uh, this is the third return from captivity, and of course the restoration of the walls and the government of Jerusalem is dealt with in the book of Nehemiah. And I love the purpose here. It, God is teaching us how he would restore for his church. Now, this isn't what happened in the book of Nehemiah. This is happening for us today. God, from this book, is teaching us how he would restore for his church the faith that protects and gives victory over the enemy. See, oftentimes we get away from God or the church is not being used, not being the salt and light that it ought to be. And so God says, look, I want you to have victory. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world, that overcomes the enemy. And notice also, he teaches us what can be accomplished, and I love this, if we would just have a mind to work. Now, that's we're having that meeting after the service tonight about Vacation Bible School. And I know it's Vacation Bible School, but you know what it really is for many of us? It's a week of work. Uh, we have to have a mind to work, whether it's a wall, whether it's Vacation Bible School, uh, whatever it may be, there's a work. Jesus came to do the will of him that sent him, and he finished his work. And God's given us this opportunity. And listen, I'm privileged to pastor a church of people that want to work for God. And I, I pray that we would work until the Lord comes back, but we must have a mind to work. And listen, if we just have faith, you say, Pastor, how many boys and girls are going to come from vacation Bible school? I have no idea. But by faith, we're going to have vacation Bible school. And we're going to do what God would allow us to do. Notice Nehemiah 2.17, Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. See, that's the way Nehemiah felt. By the way, I think that when it comes to God and God's house and the things of God, the last thing I want to do is to be a reproach on the name of Christ. And we ought to do all we can to raise the banner high. And, and, and again, our theme this year is to magnify the Lord. Notice chapter 4 and verse 6. So built we the wall, and the wall was joined together under the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. What an amazing project. And listen, there wasn't one permit issued. Just in case the city of Pembroke Pines is listening. God's work got done without one permit. Praise God. That's all I can say. Notice the outline here is three sections. And as we look at this, it makes total sense. First seven chapters deals with the construction of the walls. And that there has to be the preparation for the work. Then the work is distributed. In chapter number three, notice that as soon as they start the project, what happens? Opposition to the work, chapter four, five, and six. Then the completion of the work, the registration for the people. And again, if you know anything about the book, that may come into light a little later on. But, but again, this is making, God making sure that things are done God's way. So we see the construction of the walls. We see, secondly, the consecration of the people. Now, again, what are we talking about? We're talking about God is a holy God. And we see revival taking place in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Revival of the book of law. There's a public notice when God's word is read and published, what happens? People begin to confess, and we see the confession of the people. And then notice 
the participants and the terms of the covenant. And chapter 10 is an important uh, chapter there in the book of Nehemiah. And it leads to the third section, the confirmation of the covenant. And we find there the collection of important lists. There's a dedication of the city wall and then the correction of prevailing abuses, much like we saw at the end of the book of Ezra. God is, you know what God is doing? He's setting things in order is what he's doing, making things are done decently and in order. Now, the scope of the book, Nehemiah, uh, unlike Ezra, is a little bit longer as far as the number of years. Nehemiah covers a history of about 12 to 15 years. And the writer of the book, both Jewish and Christian traditions, recognize Ezra as the writer, though much of the book is clearly drawn from Nehemiah's personal diaries, mentioned earlier from an autobiographical approach. It's written in his first-person perspective. But remember I mentioned last week that the Jews originally, in their Bible, they believed that the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah were one book. And so oftentimes the book of Ezra is considered the first book of Ezra. The book of Nehemiah is considered the second book of Ezra. And that's why many believe, and there's no mention of the name of the writer, but it has the same style and, of course, the connection to the book of Ezra. Many, again, uh, recognize Ezra as the writer. Who was it written to? The returning remnant. And, of course, this was for the Jew. This was a great history or record of their destiny, what God has for them. And by the way, uh, they could search the scriptures. The Jews can find all over in the word of God, the covenant promises and what God has promised to them in the days to come. Now, when was it written? About 435 BC. And it was written probably in Jerusalem. The key chapter out of the 13 chapters would be the first chapter where Nehemiah pours his heart out in a prayer to God concerning Israel and his burden that he had. Chapter 1 and verse number 8 and 9 is the key verses. He prays, remember I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses. Now you know what that means? That means Nehemiah knew the word of God. He's referencing back to a command that God had given to Moses and he says, if ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if you turn unto me, and keep my commandments and do them, though there were, there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven. God says, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. And listen, that is what Israel is. That's where God has chosen for his people. That's where God has set his name. And so it's a very important prayer that Nehemiah prays concerning Israel in chapter 1. The key words, and I really I think three of them, the word wall and the word walls is used many times, I, I believe close to 35 times. The word build, okay, again dealing with the book, and the word work are all used there. And again, the word work is not a bad word, it's a good word, doing a work for God. The key phrase out of Nehemiah 2.20 is arise and build. Arise and build. Now, can I just put it this way? I know it, I know it doesn't compare to the wall, but in one month, I poured out to God and asked the Lord, and God gave me peace, and then I shared it with you as our church, and in one month, you rose to the occasion and gave $50,000 for the roof on our church. And I say, praise God. To God be the glory, you know? And listen, we're not, we're not building a wall, but 
somebody's going to get up on that roof and put those shingles on there. Aren't you glad it's not you? <laughs> I know I am, all right? So, so again, we see this, how uh, the Bible says there in chapter 2 and verse 20, Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore we are his servants, we will arise and build, and ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. And so again, his servants will arise and build. The key thought, again, just rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Now you have to understand the importance of those walls. Walls are for protection. Walls are for safety. See, nowadays, parents and children deal with different walls. It might be rules at home, principles, uh, certain things that parents have decided for their family. I remember when I was a kid, my dad used to tell me all the time, son, don't play in the street. It was just something that he told me that I should not do. Why? Because it was for my protection. There were times when my children were growing up where we would tell them that they couldn't do this or couldn't do that. And, of course, children always perceive it as bad. But as my children got older, they came to understand that those were there to protect them. They were there to help them. And look, what good, especially back in Nehemiah's day, what good was a city if you had no walls? Any enemy could come in at any time and destroy you, annihilate you. If you look and, and if you study some of the uh, land of Israel nowadays, there's a lot of cities, like for instance, have you ever heard of Tel Aviv? Well, the word tell is not like our verb tell, to tell somebody. What it was is all these cities that you see over there that are built up on a hill, the reason they're on a hill is because they're built on top of a city that was destroyed before them. So now they are Tel Aviv. And so we find here that it's very important to have the protection. In Nehemiah's day, it was important for the city to have the walls. By the way, it's still important for Jerusalem today to have the walls. And it's important for you to have walls in your life and in your family because they will protect you. And hopefully you'll see the importance of that. Now there is a spiritual truth here is to rebuild God's city and the people had a mind to work. Now though the enemy opposed them and the enemy in the book of Nehemiah sought to hinder the, the work of God and create fear in the hearts of the remnant, Nehemiah, you know what he did? Listen to this. The enemy was trying to create a fear of man. But you know what Nehemiah led them in? He led them in the fear of the Lord. He said, well, isn't that kind of crazy? No, to fear God means to have a reverence of God, to be in awe of God. It's not the same as fear of man. And Nehemiah led them in fearing the Lord. Now, with a willingness to work, and that's what the people had, of course, Nehemiah leading the way, and a determination to set the things of God in order, the people, with Nehemiah's uh, help, overcame the opposition, and they finished the work at hand. I don't know about you, but I don't like it when I see things started and not finished. And a lot of times you see that. People start things and they never finish it. 
Uh, ladies, uh, right now, don't be e thinking evil thoughts about your husband because he's got all these projects around the house that he's never finished, all right? Guys, just do the right thing and go back and finish every one of those jobs that you started. Listen, we need to make sure that we, uh, even though there's opposition, we finish the work that God's given us to do. Notice Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished. Now watch this. It was finished in the 20 and 5th day of the month Elu in the 50 and 52 days. This wall, 52 days. We can't even get a permit in 52 days. They finished the entire project in 52 days. Now look, I want you to see the rest of the verse. And it came to pass when they had finished it in 52 days, that when all our, what's that next word? Our, all our enemies heard thereof. What did they hear? That the project was done in how many days? 52, watch this. And all the heathen that were about us saw these things. What did they see? That the work of God was finished in 52 days. Notice, there were much cast down in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. You know what they're saying? Hey, listen, this, even though they were heathen people, unsaved people, only God could have done that that fast. What a great testimony to God. And listen, sometimes the world cannot decide. But you know what unites us? The Lord Jesus Christ. We're able to get things done. You know, I, I've been in some situations in the past where people can't decide what brand of toilet paper to use at church, what color to paint this or whatever. But listen, I'm so glad that we have a unified spirit. The Bible says that we should be in one accord, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And I love this, how that, listen, the testimony of God was at stake. And because they did not start it and walk away from it and quit, they finished the project and the unsaved people around them said, whoa, that had to be God that did that. What a great testimony of our great God. Now, notice the uniqueness of the book, and I want you to see this. First of all, the gates of the wall. The gates of the wall is one thing that I saw. Uh, of course, I mentioned earlier, the gate, if you just look at it, think of it logically, gate is an entry into an unknown place or maybe a place of great significance. Now, if you see this map, and I apologize, I knew it was pixelated and poor quality, and, and I basically borrowed somebody else's, but I wanted you to see a, an overall visual of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Now, again, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you a little bit later, it's, you won't be able to read the words, I have some other things to show you, but I, I just want you to see. Now, the large structure at the top, anybody know what it is? It's the temple, all right? So we see the temple, notice the blue, the water, and where the water is in, in, in regards to the city. Remember that a city without water was dead. Water brings life. And it's very important that they had water coming into the city. And oftentimes what enemies would do is if they could not penetrate the walls, they would dam up the source of water and then that somebody would have to leave or open the, the gates so that it would make it a way for the enemies to get in. So I wanted you to see that visual. Now go to the next one, Brother Tyler. And uh, this right here, if you go to chapter 3 in your Bible, 
Now see this, the, the uh, shape of this odd design? This is the walls, so it's just turned sideways. The temple was up here. So you see over on my left, or your left, notice the word temple there. And so this was turned in the other picture. And if you look at all the way around this, all these names, how in the world did they finish a wall, a project of that size, that fast? Well, Nehemiah strategically placed these people. Now, each one of these represents a group of people. And he posted them all the way around the wall. The Bible talks about uh, with, with, a, with a trial in one hand and a weapon in the other hand. Uh, there was opposition there. We're going to see that. Listen, you go out into this world, you try to do a work for God, there's always going to be somebody trying to oppose you, trying to halt the work of God. And the Bible says that they tried to get Nehemiah to come down off the wall so that they could have a ministerial association meeting. And Nehemiah said, I cannot come down because I'm doing a great work for God. And sometimes that's what we just have to do is, listen, I know that we're living in a day of accommodation. We're living in a day of, of people just, uh, just giving way here and there. But listen, I'm going to tell you something. We need to stay at the work of God and let somebody else just have their little ministerial meetings. And let's just preach the word of God and love people and see God changing lives while everybody else is trying to decide all these social projects and all these programs that the world wants to have that have no, nothing pointing people to Jesus Christ. And I love this thought here, how each one of these was posted. And by the way, if you asked each one of them, hey, how come you're here? Why are you by this gate? This isn't a very prominent place. I guarantee you every one of them would have said, hey, I'm just glad to be a part of the work of God. I'm just glad that God put me here, that Nehemiah had confidence in me to allow me to be a part of this project. And listen, that map right there, if you just look at those names and you go back to chapter 3, what you're going to find is name after name after name after name. That is the order that they are given in the book of Nehemiah chapter number 3. It's pretty exciting when you see that, how those people are laid out there. And I think I've got another one here. Uh, there you go right there. Let's leave this one up for a little bit, Brother Tyler. We turn this one back the other direction, like the first one that you saw. Now look here, the, the temple area is back at the top, and this is uh, the, the walls of Jerusalem and the gates. And I want you to look at that and think about this, and in your notes, I want you to see in Nehemiah's day, there were 10 gates. Now, we're going to start up at the top on the right-hand side. Notice the wall comes up, and there's really kind of a corner on the wall. Everybody see that there? So notice the first gate there. What's it called? The sheep gate. Now, each one of these gates were significant. And I want you to see the application of these gates to us even today. In your notes, the sheep gate speaks of Christ as the Lamb of God. The fish gate, which is the next gate that you go see going to your left, the fish gate <clears throat> speaks of our need to become fishers of men. If you come around the wall, you find what is called the old gate. This gate speaks of the old paths. The Bible talks about that we should walk in. Listen, uh, David said in his day, look, we don't need a new cart. We just need to stick to God's ways. We don't need a new path. We just need to stay to the old paths. 
And nowadays, everybody's trying to get everybody to move. Listen, if the Bible doesn't say it, then listen, I have no interest in it. Had a lady call me this afternoon. I actually thought it was one of my kids kind of messing with me. And I got to talking to this lady, and she asked me about baptizing her baby. And so I began, I began to talk to her. Lovingly, I explained to her that we don't baptize babies. And I began to explain why from the Bible. Do you know she actually listened to everything I said? I said, do you mind me asking what your background is as far as church? She says, well, my family's Catholic. I said, I used to be a Catholic. And so I began to explain to her how that in the Bible, David's child died. And David said that he would see his child again someday. And so I told her, I said, listen, I know that there's real pressure for people to baptize infants. But there's nothing in the Bible that teaches that we ought to baptize a baby. I said, you don't see it. Now, what you do see, and I began to explain to her that when we come to the understanding in our hearts that we are a sinner, that Christ died for us, and I explained to her salvation. I said, when a child, I said, that's why we're having vacation Bible school, that when a child comes to the understanding that they're a sinner need to be saved, I said, praise God when they get saved. I said, now, after salvation, never before salvation, then we see people get baptized. And I said, you know, there are people that got saved and they're in heaven today that never got baptized, just like the thief on the cross. And so I went through all of that and I, I asked her, I said, do you understand what I just said to you? And she, she said, yes, I do. And she said, thank you for explaining that to me. She said, uh, I said, listen, I, if you want to come in, I said, I'd love to sit down with you, talk to you a little bit more. And she said, well, let me talk to my husband. I said, now, listen, I talked to you about a lot of things. I said, if you start talking to your husband and say something like, well, that, that pastor just, he just said so much stuff, I can't remember it all. I said, then just ask your husband. Maybe you can come and we can sit down and I can go over it with you. See, folks, look, we have to understand that God has a way and it's in his word and we need to follow what the word of God has to say. And the old gate speaks of the old path that we should walk in. Now, as you come down the wall, and notice we come all the way down to what the Bible talks about, the turning of the wall, we have what is known as the valley gate. Now, the valley gate represents or speaks of humility. It's that you and I as Christians should take the lowly place in Christ. He took upon himself the form of a servant. Then notice the next gate that we have is known as the dung gate. Now, again, anytime you have a city, you have a lot of people, you have a lot of trash. You have a lot of animals. And this gate, again, was not one that was probably the most favorable down here at the bottom in chapter 3 and verse number 13. But the dung gate speaks of our need to keep ourselves away from the filthiness of this world. It's a beautiful picture. Then you see, as you make your way around the wall, you come to what is known as the fountain gate, which, by the way, is right where the water was, the fountain gate there. The fountain speaks of our being filled with the Spirit of God. As you go up the wall, the next gate you come to is known as the water gate. This speaks of our constant need of the water of the Word. And we need God's Word, and we need to be studying God's Word. And then you come farther up, notice around the bend of the wall there to what is known as the horse gate in verse number 28 speaks of our need to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. It actually talks about 
war and so on, and we need to make sure that we're standing in this day, having done all the stand, stand, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter number 6, and of course put on the whole armor of God. And then we come to, notice the, the east gate, notice in verse number 29, and of course the east gate speaks of Christ's return, the eastern gate, and that's a significant gate there, and of course we can't wait for the Lord to come back, and we'll share a little bit here in just a minute about that. And then we come to the last gate, verse 31, and there's a couple different names for it. There's a Hebrew name that I'm not going to even attempt to say tonight, but the reason that I named this the inspection gate is because, as you think about this, it speaks of our gathering as a believer in two ways. One, that we will be, be gathered together at the judgment seat of Christ one day, stand before the Lord. And the other one is the Bible teaches in Revelation that we will rule and reign with Christ on earth in Revelation chapter number five. Now what's interesting about this, this the way this is laid out, and by the way, God makes no mistakes, that as you begin your way around the walls and you see the gates of Nehemiah's day in chapter number three, you start with the sheep gate and you end at the sheep gate. Now think about that for just a minute because to note this in repairing the inspection gate and the section of the wall to the corner, we come back to the sheep gate since the sheep gate stands for the cross of Christ. Every time we look at the walls and we see the gates, God wants us to never get over the fact that we were once purged from our old sins by grace through faith. And we need to always be mindful of that. Now, when you think of the walls of Jerusalem, do I have some pictures here? Yeah, look at these pictures. I'll go through these real quick. These were pictures that we took in the Holy Land when we went, Miss Gladys. These were pictures that we took, and uh, I, I think I may have one or two of our folks, but here's a, here, I just want you to understand the massive size of these walls and the structure. So that's what this is all about. Go to the next one, Brother Tyler. And uh, this, this right here, and quite a few of these pictures, they actually have a walk on the ramparts on top of the walls. And so a lot of these pictures are taken from up on top of the walls. You can see the, the other walls as we're walking around. Go to the next one there. And uh, this here is, of course, a section of the wall as the street now is on the side. Of course, a lot of traffic that one's kind of dark there, but you can see the section of the wall there to the left and the landscaping coming away from it. Go to the next ones. Uh, the one on the left is, well, both of these are part of the walkway on top of the walls as we walked and made our way around the city. It was such a cool thing to, to walk around and view the city from up on top. Go to the next uh, couple there. This one here also is, of course, going around. They've installed some railing and things. You really have to watch your footing when you're up there, but it's, it's really neat. Go to the next ones there. Uh, next one, there you go. And so on the left here, of course, you see the sidewalk, the walls right there. On the right, a different view. Uh, again, the structure there. And uh, all of these are newer stones. They're not the original stones of the walls of Nehemiah's day. We'll talk about that in just a minute. You can see another view here of some of the walls. Go to the next one. And uh, next one, there you go. Anybody remember Brother Chris? That's Brother Chris right there. And uh, of course, he's up there with us, walking around and made the trip to Israel with us. And of course, you see the walls. Go to the next one. 
and uh, here's, here's us walking up top, and you can see some stuff right there in the courtyard. You see some others we were walking along. You can see where people are actually living in some quarters around there. Go to the next ones. Uh, right here, there's a picture of the dome on, uh, on the rock right here from on top. It, it's a really awesome view up there, and that was a long ways off, but we were able to see the dome on the rock. Go to the next one. And uh, this is the western wall. This is what they call it the wailing wall. And uh, people go up, they pray at this wall, they insert prayers into the cracks. You see uh, all kinds of paper shoved into the cracks here. People here all day long. This was full every time. We couldn't get Brother Robert out of here. He, he loved it there, you know. People just going there praying all the time. Brother Flynn. Built by Solomon. And so, you know, it's, it's pretty neat. And uh, go to the next one. It may have, oh, this is awesome. I don't, some of Miss Martha and a few other people might remember. We actually got a chance to go down into a section that is below ground that is right next to the western wall underground. So that's what you're looking at there is us making our way. This is on the right-hand side of our, our group there walking. That's a, a section of the, the western wall below ground. And we were privileged to be able to go down there and do that. Do I have any more? And uh, Okay, so here on the left, this is uh, what is now called the Lion's Gate. And uh, this is where you go into the area known as Bethesda, the Pool of Bethesda, uh, and Mary's, uh, Mary's mother. They have a church there dedicated to her, and, and that, that was really neat. And you know what we saw as we came up there was we didn't see a lot, but we saw some people that were lame. We saw some crippled people as we we're going up, and, bro and Brother Chris, he kind of pulled me over, and he goes, hey, have you noticed all the people here? And I said, well, maybe, maybe people still believe that there's still some healing uh, quality there in this area. Now, this, this picture on the right, that's Brother Robert there. And uh, Brother Robert and I were standing right there, and I had, I had kind of made my way. You're supposed to stay together, but I, I was just kind of investigating on my own. And I went through, we were standing here by the Lion's Gate. I went to the left, and I, I walked around for a little bit, and I came back out, and I said, I, go, I saw Brother Robert. I go, hey, Brother Robert, come here. And he comes over, and I said, come here. And so we walked through this area, and he stopped right there. I said, let me take your picture. And he's like, okay. And so I took his picture standing here, and you can't tell from where he's standing, but right down from where Robert's standing is the eastern gate where the Lord's going to come through one day. I told Robert, I said, man, I don't know about you, but I said, I got, I got chills right now. You know, go to the next one. That's the eastern gate. That's the eastern gate. And notice the proximity to the Temple Mount. You know, it's, it's amazing. And by the way, I, I'm, I'm already praying about, and if some of you are interested, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start planning another trip to the Holy Land. And if some of you want to go, it's, it's a great trip. You on board already? <laughs> so look here. They, they sealed up. They sealed these entrances. How many of you think it's going to hold Jesus? <laughs> now, the amazing thing is, if you notice in front of it, there's a cemetery. And so the, the Ottomans and the Arabs have basically put a cemetery thinking it's going to keep Christ out. And, of course, we, we understand that it will not. Do I have any more, Brother Tyler? 
And they, that's it, right? All right? So let me share a few things. Leave that up there because I want you to think about this, about the walls. Now, a, a lot of times we see those walls. We see what's there now. Uh, one day we were actually at the synagogue in Capernaum. We were standing there. They were talking about how Christ used to come and he would teach in the synagogue there. And they were talking about how that the stones that were there, that, that you could see the differences in the colors of the stones. And our guide said, he goes, if you look at the base, he goes, those are the original stones. But he said, everything else that's above that has been built and destroyed and built and destroyed. And again, when you think about the walls, here's a couple things I just want you to think about before we move on. The walls of the city of Jerusalem and its gates have expanded and contracted through the centuries. In 1000 to 971 BC, David captured Jerusalem. David made it Jerusalem his capital, the capital of Israel. He called it the city of David. Uh, what's interesting about this is, is that what was known as the city of David just really sat, listen to this, on 10 acres south of the modern walls of today. Uh, so when you look at the, the walls of Jerusalem, if you look just to the left, you see a small section that is still known as the city of David. And so it's kind of cool. You see how David, in his day, he expanded and, of course, just had the 10 acres. Then in 971 to 931, Solomon expanded the city north. And when he expanded the city north, it included the hill that, that uh, called the Temple Mount where he built the first temple. In 931 to 586, in Hezekiah's day, Assyria invaded the north and Hebrew refugees flooded the city. The walls of Jerusalem were expanded to the west. That quadrupled the size of the city. King Hezekiah built a wall around the western hill of the city. A portion of this, what known as Broad Wall, still stands in today's Jewish quarter. In 444 to 442 BC, remember we're looking here at the book of Nehemiah. After the return from captivity, the small Jewish population under Nehemiah's leadership, rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem with dimensions similar to Solomon's day. Since Nehemiah's day, the walls have spread west and north by Hasmonean kings, further expansion north by Herod Agrippa I, and then Titus historically leveled the walls of Jerusalem in 70 AD. In the third century, a wall was constructed that, to that of the old city walls, Constantine expanded the city to accommodate the flood of pilgrims that were coming to see the sites of Jesus. The walls we see today were actually built by Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent about 537. And today there are, not like in Nehemiah's day, there are eight gates that are built into the city's walls. Seven of those gates are open. One of them is sealed. The four main gates, Jaffa, Damascus, Lyons, and the Zion Gate were constructed according to the four directions of the compass and led to the main cities of the land. So there's one to the north, one to the south, one to the east, and one to the west. The Golden Gate faces east, and it is called in Hebrew and Arabic the Gate of Mercy. According to Jewish tradition, it is this gate through which the Messiah will enter Jerusalem. And to prevent the Messiah's entry, the Ottomans and Arabs have sealed the gate several centuries ago to build a cemetery in front of it. Now, the prophet Ezekiel, notice, I think you have this in your notes, 
he said this, Behold, the glory of God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like a noise of many waters. And the earth shined with his glory, and it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision that I saw when I came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision that I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell upon my face, and the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate whose prospect is toward the east. That was Ezekiel in chapter 43 in verses 2 through 4. And so we see that Daniel and Ezekiel both have something to do with what's going to happen in the days ahead. Now, how is Christ magnified as we conclude this tonight? Two ways that I saw. One, he is the restorer of his people. The restorer of his people. Nehemiah portrays Christ in his willingness to leave his high position in order to bring about his work of restoration. Now think about that. What did Nehemiah, he, he had a cushy job other than testing for the king. He, he had the, the, the luxurious life that he did, but he left his high position to, to bring about restoration for his people. Well, what did Jesus do? He left the splendors of heaven and came to this earth so that you and I could have eternal life. And we see that then that God uses the decree of our taxerces, and this decree of our taxerces marks the beginning, listen, uh, the beginning point of Daniel's prophecy of 70 weeks of years, which though interpreted by the unspecific time, begins the countdown for the return of the Messiah. Now the reason I said it that way is because, do you know how many of those weeks of years has already passed? 69. So how many weeks of years is left? Just one, right? One week. And that one week is what period in the Bible? It's the seven years of tribulation, right? So guess where we are right now? We are right between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. And listen, only the Lord knows how much longer he's going to wait for his return. We're looking forward to that. But he is the restorer of his people. And notice also he's the great intercessor for his people. Now going back to Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. Nehemiah prayed passionately for his people. We saw a couple of those seasons of prayer that he had with God. Notice his zealous intercession for God's people foreshadows Jesus, who prayed fervently for his people while he was in his high priestly prayer in John chapter number 17. But both Nehemiah and Jesus had a burning love for God's people, which they poured out in prayer to God. And so notice that what were they doing? They were interceding for them before the throne of God. And I see, again, both these in Nehemiah and Christ being used as restorer and great intercessor for God's people. Now, in conclusion, Nehemiah, he led the Israelites into a respect and a love for the scriptures. Let me say that again. He led the people in a respect for the scriptures and a love for the scriptures. And I love the emphasis there. If we expect to experience the spiritual revival that they did, the children of Israel did, then we too must begin with the word of God. Now today, the book of Nehemiah, for us, it stands as a book teaching us God's work demands patient endurance. We have to patiently endure day after day, trusting God. It illustrates the principle of 1 Corinthians 16, 9, for a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many 
adversaries. This was Paul writing and talking about the work that God had given to him, and every time Paul turned around, there was someone else opposing the work. Folks, look, the more we uh, do for the Lord, the longer we live, the more God carries his coming. There is a great door and effectual open unto us, but guess what? Nothing has changed. There are still many adversaries, and we must have a mind to work as they did in Nehemiah's day. Now, notice last statement here. Each of us ought to have a genuine care for others who have spiritual or even physical hurts, to feel compassion and to do nothing to help is unfounded biblically. That's not God's way. That's not the spirit of Christ. You know, like, like the priest and the Levite just walk by on the other side. You know, we must see the need and meet the need in people. At times, we may have to give up our own comfort. Sometimes I think that's why we don't do the things that we ought to, because we would have to give up our comfort in order to minister properly to others. We must totally believe in a cause before we will give our time and money to it with the right heart. Remember what David said when he went out to the battle? They're standing around twiddling their thumbs. They're, they're, they're frozen. They're paralyzed because of one man. And David said, is there not a cause? And there is a cause. There's a great work to do, and when we allow God, I love this, when we allow God to minister through us, even unbelievers will know it's God's work. That's what they said when they saw that wall get finished in 52 days. This was the Lord's work, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the truth that we saw tonight and the reminders of not just walls, but what those walls represented. Nehemiah and the people of God back then, they did not want to be a reproach on the name of Christ. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to live in such a way that brings honor and glory to you. We just want our lives, our church, this family, to magnify you. And God, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.